Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of American Biography is brought to you by Robbie and Sandra. Thanks, you two. Your support means a lot to me. Other listeners who wish to support American Biography can do so by subscribing to our new Patreon page, by going to www.patreon.com forward slash ambio and signing up to be a sustaining patron. What does it mean to be a sustaining patron? It means you pledge to make a reoccurring donation of whatever amount you choose for each time a new episode comes out. Sustaining patrons at any level will be eligible for periodic bonus episodes that are currently in development and will not be available through the regular RSS feed. The topic for the first of these has been chosen, but I'll talk more about that in the future as we approach the release date. I pledge of allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, to the Republic, of which stands on the nation undergone, that was and liberty for justice for all. Justice for who? All. Hello, and welcome back to American Biography, part of the Agora Podcast Network. This is episode 18, Marshall in the Middle. So, did you like the special introduction to today's podcast? Quick story before we get started. So as I'm getting ready to record, Little Miss American Biography saunters over and asks if she can talk to my microphone. So I say, sure assuming that she'll sing Let It Go or Taylor Swift or something like that. And I was blown away when she starts rattling off the American Pledge of Allegiance. As a history nerd and a dad, I was so proud that I had to share that little moment with you. And it's a big relief to me to know that it looks like, one day, I may have someone to pass on my podcasting empire to. But now, let's get back to it. Last time we discussed John Marshall's triumphant return to the United States and his election to the 6th Congress. Today, we're going to focus on John's time in the House of Representatives. You'll recall, in the 1799 elections, Federalists had grown their majority in the House by 14 seats. Marshall, like so many of the other Federalists who had been swept into office that year, did so on a rising tide of anti-French public sentiment. But little could John or his contemporaries have known that for the Federalist Party, to paraphrase Hunter S. Thompson, this was the kind of peak that never came again. They were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. But less than five years later, if they looked back, 
with the right kind of eyes, they would have seen that this was the high water mark, that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. As we also touched upon last time, that increased Federalist majority was predicated on the election of new members from the South, who were by necessity more moderate, more sensitive to public opinion, and less ideologically rigid than the haughtier New England ultras. Disdain may not be too strong of a word for the way the ultras viewed the people, and they perceived themselves to be enlightened, virtuous men, who must lead rather than follow public opinion, and who must be ready to intercede and substitute their own superior judgment should the people's passions begin taking policy in the wrong direction. But that was not the only schism within the Federalist Party. President John Adams was a New Englander and a Federalist through and through. Yet he lacked the hawkish enthusiasm for war with France that had come to be nearly sacred to the more bellicose ultras. Adams's restraint throughout the crisis engendered by the French insult to the American peace delegation, of which Marshall had been a part, and his dedication to keeping the United States out of a broader conflict, even as the quasi-war raged with France, earned Adams the support of the incoming moderates, but also the scorn of the high Federalist leadership. And for the President's part, the feeling was mutual. Marshall didn't seem to be aware of how bad the political infighting was when he arrived in Philadelphia with Polly, who was, you guessed it, pregnant again. But we can see Marshall's surprise at the disarray within the Federalist Party in a letter that he sent to his brother shortly after his arrival, in which he noted that things were more critical than I conjectured. The Eastern people are very much dissatisfied with the president. And he further comments, they are strongly disposed to desert him and to push some other candidate. John's naivete about the depth of the party's rift was on full display when he, in an effort to embrace the Federalists' new national character, nominated John Rutledge, a Southern Federalist, for Speaker of the House, inadvertently threatening New England's dominance of the party. The ultras went apoplectic over this move, and after three meetings of the Federalist Congressional Caucus failed to resolve the question, Rutledge asked Marshall to withdraw his name for the sake of the party before the Republican minority moved to take advantage of the impasse. Despite this initial misstep, Marshall's natural enthusiasm and friendly disposition led him to becoming a crucially important player in congressional politics. He was recognized by all as forthcoming principled, and trustworthy. Therefore, he was viewed as an honest broker, particularly among the wings of the Federalist Party and more moderate Republicans, and was somebody that nearly everyone felt comfortable doing business with. It was in his character not to burn bridges, and throughout his long career it's amazing how few implacable enemies he ever made. And for those that he did make, it seems often to say more about their character than his. From the earliest times in Richmond, his ability to compartmentalize political and business disagreements and hold them separate from personal affections and relationships, in this place and time, rendered him an important ally for President Adams, whose own personality could be gruff and graceless. Marshall's political diplomacy was tested when he was selected to compose 
the Congressional Response to the President's 1799 State of the Union Address, and somehow managed to navigate the rocky shoals of that body's diverse opinions over the administration's continued diplomatic efforts with France in sending a second peace delegation, and finessed a reply which won unanimous approval. Upon the heels of that small achievement came the earth-shattering news that George Washington had died on December 14, 1799. The House was in session when reports reached Philadelphia four days later, and Marshall moved for adjournment. When the representatives reassembled the next day, Marshall still held the floor and delivered a testament to Washington, composed by his friend Henry Lee, and given to Marshall for the occasion, referring to the old general and first president as, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. Shortly afterwards, Marshall was placed in charge of a committee to organize Washington's funeral services in the Capitol. This consisted of a solemn procession through the streets of Philadelphia to a church where Henry Lee delivered an oration. Marshall's committee also introduced a bill to establish a monument to George Washington in the new Capitol then under construction on the banks of the Potomac River. John's political star was clearly ascendant and he was actively working to change the culture of his party and the institution of Congress. Writing in a letter to his brother-in-law, he said, I hope a mutual spirit of toleration and forbearance will succeed to the violence, which seemed in too great a degree to govern last year. As far as I can judge, from present appearances, this will be a temperate session and I wish, most devoutly, that the prevalence of moderation here may diffuse the same spirit among our fellow citizens at large. Massachusetts Federalist George Cabot recognized Marshall's leadership position, but not without some reservation, writing, In Congress, you see General Marshall is a leader. He is, I think, a virtuous and certainly an able man, but you see in him the faults of a Virginian. He thinks too much of that state, and he expects the world will be governed according to the rules of logic. I have seen such men often become excellent legislators after experience has cured their errors. I hope it will prove so with General Marshall, who seems calculated to act a great part. Even Speaker Sedgwick, who acknowledged Marshall's centrality to accomplishing anything that term, maintained a regional snobbery, writing... He possesses great powers, and has much dexterity in the application of them. He is highly and deservedly respected by the friends of government from the South. In short, we can do nothing without him. I believe his intentions are perfectly honorable, and yet I do believe he would have been a more decided man had his education been on the other side of the Delaware. During his time in Congress, John was a whirlwind of activity. Deeply involved in just about every matter that came before the House, he became an invaluable conduit, essential to the functionality of the chamber, and he continuously played a central role in key issues publicly debated on the floor and privately discussed in the cloakroom. Several examples surpass others in importance and deserve our attention here. On the first day of 1800, the Republicans proposed a resolution to disband the army. On several levels, this made sense. Tensions with France were decreasing, the army was unpopular, unused, 
and expensive to maintain, for what seemed like no reason, especially now that Washington, the official leader of that army, had passed away. Part of Marshall agreed with the Republicans. However, the other part of him recalled that when the United States didn't have that army, he, Pickney, and Jerry couldn't even get an official meeting with Talleyrand. But now, with that army and a beefed-up navy, it was all sunshine and flowers between Talleyrand and the Adams administration's second peace delegation. And John thought if America dropped the army all at once, a big piece of the Americans' leverage in Paris would be lost. So he sought out a middle ground and proposed to suspend new enlistments for the army, but maintain current levels of manpower until the negotiations were concluded. With the other Southern Federalists standing with him, the Republican bill was defeated on January 10th, and on the 24th, the House passed Marshall's compromise version of the bill. With adroit political maneuvering, Marshall was also able to get a Federalist bankruptcy bill out of the House, something previous Congresses had tried but failed to do, as significant parts of each party opposed such a law, though for wildly divergent reasons. The key to Marshall's success was his willingness to bend in order to get would-be opponents to buy in. Ideological purists of both parties might look down on that sort of horse trading as a moral corruption, but with the simple addition of a provision stating that bankruptcy and debts would be determined by a jury, Marshall was able to get enough Republican support to pass a bill that ended debt imprisonment and kicked bankruptcy proceedings from the state level to federal district courts where they could be handled in a uniform manner nationally. Early in 1800, the Republicans also moved to repeal the Sedition Act. The legitimate repugnance of this act made it natural fodder in an election year, and this Federalist measure, juxtaposed against Jeffersonian Republicanism as it was then being expressed in the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions, helped shape and crystallize the two parties' differences for the electorate. House Republicans were full behind the repeal motion, and despite the unpopularity and dubious efficacy of the law, the Federalist leadership and most of the rank and file stood square against it. Most, but not all. John Marshall, true to his campaign promise, voted to repeal the law, and brought enough of his southern moderates with him to win the vote 50-48. to 48. When you think about it, this is an incredible act, considering it could conceivably have cost John his political future. As Beveridge points out, he could not hope to win enough points with the Republicans to find welcome within that party. His vote could only earn him the animosity of the Federalists in Congress, and possibly the ire of the President. The Federalists, however, were able to insert a motion for amendment, which sent the bill into a parliamentary vortex of sorts, where despite Marshall casting two more repeal votes, the motion that initially had won ended up going down in defeat. Marshall also counterdicted Federalist desires when a disputed elections bill, which seemed designed specifically to deny Jefferson the presidency in 1800, was passed by the Senate and sent to the House for approval. The bill established a grand committee comprised of House and Senate members who would meet to decide on the legitimacy of electoral votes. This committee would literally have the final say about which votes could be counted 
and which could not, and thereby, in all practical terms, would choose the next president. And on top of that, their proceedings would be secret and their decision would be final. With both houses of Congress being in the Federalist control, it doesn't take an overactive imagination to see where this could go wrong. Marshall's objection to the bill were constitutional. To him, Article II already clearly outlined the electoral process and centered it in the Electoral College, or if need be, the House of Representatives, and he did not see how an all-powerful congressional committee would at all conform to the constitutionally prescribed procedures. Accordingly, he led the effort to gut the bill, speaking against it and proposing so many amendments that it was sent to a special committee that he'd chair for revision. The House version of the bill... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Which emerge strip the committee of any discretion to investigate or to determine the validity of electoral votes. And when this revised version of the bill was sent back to the Senate, since it no longer would allow Federalists to manipulate election results, it was referred to committee, where it languished and died. But the pinnacle of John Marshall's congressional career was undoubtedly his performance during the Robbins inquest. A bit of background will be necessary before we go on. In 1797, the crew of the HMS Hermione, mutinied, killed their officers, sailed to a Spanish port, and sold the ship before the crew went their separate ways. One seaman, a British subject named Thomas Nash, ended up in South Carolina working in the U.S. Merchant Marine. Citing a provision of the Jade Treaty, the British consul requested his arrest and extradition. The wrinkle occurred when Nash claimed that he wasn't Nash at all, but rather was an American citizen named Jonathan Robbins, a native of Danbury, Connecticut, who had been pressed into service aboard the Hermione and had just stayed out of the way while the mutiny unfolded. In support of his identity, Robbins offered some rather doubtful documentation. The U.S. Federal District Court, which heard the British Consul's petition for extradition, 
deferred to the State Department, and ultimately, the Adams administration turned over Robbins, or, uh, I mean, Nash, to the British, who duly court-martialed him, convicted him, and executed him. At this news, the Republican newspapers, obviously running with the story that Nash was in fact Robbins, and Adams had kowtowed to the British and knowingly handed over an innocent American to the bloodthirsty British, exploded with outrage. In Congress, the Republicans' ears perked up at the hint of scandal. Censuring the president was discussed, and the House requested what papers the White House had relating to the case, which were handed over and showed no wrongdoing. Beveridge adds a list of evidence, writing, The selectmen of Danbury, Connecticut, certified that no such person as Jonathan Robbins, nor any family of the name of Robbins, ever had lived in that town. So did the town clerk. On the contrary, a British naval officer, who knew Nash well, identified him. Chastened when confronted with these truths, the Republicans meekly decided to back down and cease their attacks on Adams. No, that's not what happened. Of course they didn't. Confronted by evidence, the Republicans, without missing a beat, made it out that the president had unconstitutionally usurped a judiciary function in handing over Robbins, or Nash, or whoever he was, and that whether he was an American or a Briton, the extradition question should have been decided in an American court by an American jury, as if that had been their problem with Adams's actions all along. Republicans offered a resolution calling the president's actions a dangerous interference of the executive with judicial decisions. And knowing they had a numerical advantage, the Federalist leadership decided to bring that motion to the floor for debate. After several days of the Republicans dithering over procedural questions and making motions for redundant evidentiary requests, it was clear that they were hoping to drag these proceedings out as long as they could, even up until the election if possible. With Marshall's urging, these resolutions were all defeated and the debate began. On Thursday, March 6th, the very able Albert Gallatin, future Secretary of Treasury for the Jefferson administration, spoke for several hours in favor of the Republican resolution. The next day, Marshall rose to answer. A contemporary, William Wirt, gives us a good sketch of what Marshall roughly looked like in these years and described the man about to address Congress this way. In his person, tall, meager, emaciated, his muscles relaxed, and his joints so loosely connected as not only to disqualify him, apparently, for any vigorous exertion of body, but to destroy everything like elegance and harmony in his air and movements. Indeed, in his whole appearance and demeanor, dress, attitude, gesture, sitting, standing, or walking, he is as far removed from the idealized graces of Lord Chesterfield as any other gentleman on earth. To continue the portrait, his head and face are small in proportion to his height, his complexion swarthy, the muscles of his face being relaxed. His countenance has a faithful expression of great good humor and hilarity, while his black eyes, that unerring index, possesses an irradiating spirit which proclaims the imperial powers of the mind that sits enthroned within. His voice is dry and hard. His attitude, in his most effective orations, often extremely awkward, as it was not unusual for him to stand with his left foot in advance, while all his gesture 
proceeded from his right arm, and consisted merely in a vehement, perpendicular swing of it from about the elevation of his head to the bar, behind which he was accustomed to stand. For the next three hours, Marshall proceeded to deliver what his friend Joseph Story called one of the most consummate juridical arguments which was ever pronounced in the halls of legislation, and point by point Marshall dismantled the entire Republican argument. Smith writes, Marshall examined the Jay Treaty, jurisdiction over crimes at sea, the law of nations, and the rules of extradition. He buttressed his case with extensive citations from Coke, Grotius, Hawkins, Pleas of the Crown, Roman Civil Law, and the relevant American statutes. The Republicans were contending that the courts had the power to decide all questions arising under the Constitution, treaties, and laws of the United States. However, Marshall pointed out that the Constitution actually said that the judicial power extended to all cases in law and equity arising under the Constitution, laws, and treaties of the United States. Now, you may be saying, so what? That sounds like the same thing. But it's not. And I'm reminded here of nothing so much as my favorite Mark Twain quote, which goes, The difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and the lightning bug. Marshall argued for the importance of the limiting phrases that the Constitution actually used, saying, A case in law or equity was a term well understood and of limited signification. It was a controversy between parties that had taken shape for judicial reasons. If the judicial power extended to every question under the Constitution, it would involve almost every subject proper for legislative discussion and decision. If to every question under the laws and treaties of the United States, it would involve almost every subject on which the executive could act. The division of powers could exist no longer, and the other departments would be swallowed up by the judiciary. In the course of his speech, John drew a sharp distinction between legal questions, which the courts could and should decide, and political questions, which they should not. This is not to say that a question can't sometimes be both, in fact they regularly are, but there are also times when questions clearly are not, and fall distinctly into one sphere or the other. For the purposes of the Robbins case, Marshall stated that extradition was a political question, falling under the jurisdiction of a treaty, and was therefore part and parcel within the scope of responsibilities of the president in handling international affairs. Smith relays a story originally recorded by Henry Adams that after the speech, Gallatin was surrounded by his fellow Republicans essentially asking him what the next move was, how are we going to answer this? Gallatin purportedly responded, Gentlemen, answer it yourself. For my part, I think it's unanswerable. The next day, the Republican motion condemning Adams was resoundingly defeated, but because of Marshall's speech, the Adams administration was exonerated. Marshall was in fact quietly and without collusion becoming the president's biggest supporter in Congress, largely because they happened to share a similar goal of empowering a centrist coalition against the extreme wings of both parties, and in terms of policy, they simply tended to agree. 
For reasons we'll discuss in greater depth next time, in the spring of 1800, Adams was looking for effective allies to aid him in securing his place as leader of the party. Accordingly, he began to clean out his cabinet of individuals believed to be under the sway of Alexander Hamilton. In early May, the president seems to have provoked an argument with Secretary of War James McHenry, prompting the latter's resignation. Two days later, Adams nominated Marshall to take McHenry's place without telling him. This led to a mortifying incident when John visited the War Department, but I'll let John tell you about that himself in his own words. In May 1800, as I was about to leave Philadelphia for the purpose of attending the courts in Richmond, I stepped into the War Office in order to make some inquiries respecting patents for some of my military friends, and was a good deal struck with a strange sort of mysterious coldness, which I soon observed in the countenance of Mr. McHenry, the Secretary of War, with whom I had long been on terms of friendly intimacy. I, however, prosecuted my inquiries until they brought me into conversation with Mr. Fitzsimmons, the Chief Clerk, who congratulated me on being placed at the head of that department and expressed the pleasure it gave all those who were engaged in it. I did not understand him, and was really surprised at hearing that I had been nominated to the Senate as Secretary of War. I did not believe myself to be well qualified for this department, and was not yet willing to abandon my hopes of reinstating myself at the bar. I therefore addressed a letter to Mr. Adams, making my acknowledgments for his notice of me, and requesting that he withdraw my name from the Senate, as I was not willing to openly decline a place in his administration, which I was disposed cordially to support. What happened next is legitimately strange. Adams did not withdraw Marshall's name, and John was in fact confirmed to the post on May 9th. However, Marshall had already left for Richmond. Then, on May 10th, Adams asked for Secretary of State Pickering's resignation. Pickering refused, and on May 12th was outright sacked by Adams. Once again, Adams submitted Marshall's name to the Senate, but this time to head the State Department. The president simultaneously submitted another candidate, I guess technically to replace Marshall as Secretary of War, but at this point, I'm not even sure if the senators themselves had a particularly clear picture of what was going on, but they nevertheless confirmed the appointments on the 13th. Meanwhile, back in Richmond, John was beginning to surmise that his law practice might not be salvageable. Regardless of how good he was, John simply wasn't around to be relied upon to provide for the legal needs of his former clients, and into the vacuum created by his extended absences in Paris or Philadelphia, other lawyers had swooped in. His salary as a congressman just wasn't going to be enough to cover his expenses, and couldn't keep his family in the lifestyle that they'd become accustomed to. Then he received a letter from Attorney General Charles Lee, containing his new commission and filling him in on all that had happened since he left the Capitol. We don't have to guess what was running through Marshall's mind, because, again, I'll let him tell you. I was given up as a lawyer, and considered generally as entirely a political man. I lost my business altogether, and perceived very clearly that I could not recover any portion of it without retiring from Congress. Even then, I could not hope to regain the ground I had lost. This experiment, however, I was willing to make, and would have made had my political enemies been quiet. 
but the press teemed with so much falsehood, with such continued and irritating abuse of me, that I could not bring myself to yield to it. I could not conquer a stubbornness of temper which determines a man to make head against and struggle with injustice. I felt that I must continue a candidate for Congress, and consequently could not replace myself at the bar. On the other hand, the office, meaning Secretary of State, was precisely that which I wished, and for which I had vanity enough to think myself fitted. I should remain in it while the party remained in power. Should a revolution take place, it would, at all events, relieve me from competition for Congress without yielding to my adversaries, and enable me to return once more to the bar in the character of a lawyer, having no possible view of politics. I determined to accept the office. And with that acceptance, that's all for today. But please join me next time as we chart Marshall's brief tenure at state and talk about the implosion of the Federalist Party. In the meantime, make sure you check out the Agora Podcasters of the Month, Travis Dow and Pete Coleman, by going to podcastnick.com to see all the great content they produce, including the History of Germany, the Bohemican Podcast, History of Alchemy, The Secret Cabinet, and more. Please remember that you can follow American Biography on Facebook and on Twitter at American underscore bio, and you can check out the website www.americanbiography.webs.com. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me by email at americanbiographypodcast at gmail.com. Okay, everybody. Thank you all so much for listening, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.